WBZ original. Yeah. A guy does not want to be called pretty. <laughs> no, no. A guy wants to be handsome. Right. He wants to attract or hot. Fine. That's what I get a lot. I was <laughs> so offended. Are you seeing your marginalized group? <laughs> yeah. The pretty, yes. the pretty okay. united will never be defeated. <laughs> into the Halloween week episode of Studio BZ. This is season four, episode four, which must be some symbolic number. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm Paula Evan. I'm Leah Martin, and John Keller is back with welcome us. Welcome John. Hello. Good and to be back. I, I told you before, David did an impression of you. Yeah, right. <laughs> one so word. Yeah. It was a one-word impression. It was very effective. Right. He went, governor. How, how many people can be mimicked with just one word? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Like, you're like I'm honored. Sting. Or right, right. It just goes by one name. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Madonna. Just the one Madonna. Word. Um, Out of an aging male Jewish Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> you mercifully missed Liam's impression of John Lennon, which oh, we yeah. won't revisit. Okay. But uh, you can listen to last week's podcast. Um, Coming up on this week's show, John, we know you talked to Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. Yeah, kind of an interesting uh, opportunity to sit down and and get past the canned sound bites a little bit with Marty Walsh, who will be announcing, this no surprise to anyone, certainly will be announcing that he's running for re-election to a third term. That'll Mm -hmm. probably happen sometime after the first of the year, but uh, politics sure has changed a lot since he first ran. We'll talk with him about that. And Liam, you talked to yet another presidential candidate. You've spoken to almost all of them, this time Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. We spoke with the Yang gang uh, up in Concord, New Hampshire, about his idea for the universal basic income, what he calls the freedom dividend, whether or not he has a shot in this race. And then because so many people ask him about UBI, I also wanted to ask him where he stands on some of the other major issues in the 2020 mm-hmm. race. And then we're going to talk about Halloween costumes. Yes, I thought it was a good idea for us all to come up with the worst Halloween costume we wore as kids up to adulthood. Whatever you can think of as your worst, right. so we're going to get to that So look later forward on. to that. And then, John, you addressed this last headline. Explain uh, this. Keller ist ein Berliner? <laughs> yeah, he went to Berlin. I, that's right, I <laughs> did. I went to Berlin first time there. Unbelievable place. I have, you know, I'll tell you, this won't really translate on the podcast, but I do have a three and a half hour PowerPoint presentation of the photos <laughs> oh, I took. Oh, Perhaps no. after the taping, we'll. First up today, John Keller talked with Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. And John, something that was in the news for a while leading up to this interview was this straight pride parade rally in Boston. Were you able to ask him about that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. Uh, However, I want to encourage people to go for that portion of our conversation to go to cbsboston.com. That was in the TV portion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and we got into other topics during the interview you were about to hear. But it was interesting. Uh, I asked him about the controversy that has sort to come out of that day, that straight pride rally, there were clashes between some demonstrators, some of them wearing masks, mm. and a, a handful of Boston police. Now there's a big uproar over should people be allowed to wear masks in a in a setting like that. But then I asked him about another controversial question coming out of that day. Why weren't the cops wearing body cameras? Mm-hmm. That might have helped answer a lot of questions about what went on there. And uh, his answer is worth checking mm-hmm. out. You can do that over at 
at cbsboston.com. Click on Keller at Large and go down to the Marty Walsh uh, TV interview. And then, of course, you got into the state of the Democratic Party, labor unions, and the 2020 election. Well, as I said, he's gearing up to run again. And in just a few short years, certainly here in Boston, and I think you look at the National Democratic Party there as well, uh, the ground has shifted. And I started off by asking Marty Walsh if uh, perhaps uh, his very persona might have rendered him somewhat politically obsolete. Studio, easy. A much much more city living. living. So, Mayor, I don't really like when the political dialogue focuses on labels and on identity, on racial identity or gender identity. However, uh, a lot of people do gravitate toward that stuff. Uh, We see it more and more in our political rhetoric. Uh, So I want to ask you, as a white male office holder, do you feel at all like a dinosaur? (laughs) I don't think I feel like a dinosaur, but but I I think what's happened in politics today, um, it's difficult. I mean, I mean... uh, the two-party system, I think it happened with the Republicans first with Tea Party coming out. Um, and then when the Tea Party came out, there was a separation in the Republican Party. And then the Freedom Caucus came out and it was, you know, you had to stand for certain things. It's happened to some degree in the Democratic Party. You have Democrats um, telling people should run against other Democrats, challenging people. Um, they're questioning your, your ethics on certain issues where you stand. Um, I personally think that as, as a politician, as elected official, we have to go back to governing. And I think we've gotten away from governing in a lot of cases, particularly on a national level. Um, and what I mean by that is just, you know, I get elected to do a job. My job is to be mayor of the city of Boston. And, and, and I think that we have to focus back on on what my job is. And, and, and people have to focus back on their job, you know, between social media and Twitter and, and Facebook and, and kind of looking for catchphrases. People are running for office with, with catchphrases, but there's a job to do. And I think that we've seen the erosion in the United States Senate and the United States Congress of Democrats, Republicans not being able not being able to agree on anything. What I mean by that is that if they agree on it, their party in some cases will, will, will go against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw it, saw it with Ellen 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 the other day, Ellen DeGeneres, yeah, um, at the football game with with, with former President Bush. Um, and she was criticized for it. I mean, she sat next to the former president of the United States of America. She didn't agree with him on anything. But is that's is that why, why all of a sudden was that a bad thing? I mean, I, I'm a Democrat. I'm a proud Democrat. Uh, but I, I just think we're, we're going a little too far in some areas. The whole us versus them yeah, uh, mentality. I, I just think it's too far. And uh, but but I do think. Let me go back to what you talked about in the beginning, the labeling piece. I mean, there there are absolutely groups of people, ethnic groups of people, uh, Latino community, uh, African American community. Um, women uh, that honestly that, that over the last 50, 60, 100 years felt shut out of the political process. And, and I think that, that people feel today that, that there's an opportunity here. So uh, I, I think that a, a lot of that a lot of that labeling, if you will, if that's the right word for it, is people that, that, that felt shut out for a long time. And quite honestly, a lot of them were shut out by white men. Um, and, and now they're saying, wait a second, this is our opportunity to, to move forward. And uh, so I wouldn't naturally say that I feel extinct, but I, but I just think that the political atmosphere is changing so much that, that I think we have to go back to fundamentals. Yeah, there's a backlash. I mean, uh, you know, let me ask you about, you know, your own background as a you were a union uh, activist and then a union president yeah. uh, for many years before you got into politics. Uh, and you've been identified as a strong uh, union supporter, as uh, a politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
you know, oftentimes, you know, is it fair to describe unions as a special interest? I think it is. I mean, they are in some ways, and they, they also represent people. And, you know, when I ran for mayor in 2013, if you remember, I mean, a lot of the business community didn't support me because they thought I was too close to labor. The the, the papers didn't endorse me because they said I was going to be uh, bad for business. And, and today, if you ask the business community in Boston, they'll say, you know, Monty Walsh has been a great mayor of the city of Boston. If you ask organized labor, I think they'd say I've been a good mayor of the city of Boston. If you ask people not affiliated with union, I think most people would say I've done a good job as mayor of the city of Boston. I think there's a balance that you can do there. I think that, you know, labor has a place. I'm, I'm proud of that. I've said it before. I wear it with a badge of honor uh, that, that, that I ran the building trades and, and that, that I was the head of the, the president of the labor's union. Um, I'm also proud of my, my accomplishments and, and not everything that I've done aligns with organized labor. I mean, there's things I haven't that, that I'm been popular, but, but again, I'm in a role of mayor looking what, what's the best thing for the city of Boston. And, and I think that, again, I think that, um, you know, it seems like labor is having a resurgence in the country to some degree. Um, again, it goes back to the first question you asked me about the polarization of politics. The same thing with labor. How about having a conversation? I, I just think that we need to have more dialogue. I think that if you put business people in a room along with labor people in the room and talked about what the core is, the bottom line is that they pretty much stand for the same thing. Uh, the business people want to make a profit and they want to take care of their employees and the unions want to organize and, and represent their employees so, so that they can be successful. And if companies that unions are, have representation on aren't doing well, well, that's not going to help labor because if a company goes out of business, that you lose the workforce, that doesn't help your membership. What's the next big contract facing the city? For us, uh, next year, just about everyone's up. Um, you know, I'm very excited about having every contract up the year before an election year. Um, teachers? Teacher, uh, teachers are up. Firefighters, police, uh, wow. AFSCME. A lot of them are up again. So, so we, we just settled. Uh, the end of the beginning of this year, I think we just fin- finalized. I think almost every contract's resolved. Now we're going back into negotiations. Well, the economy's booming, you, so you're flush with money. So uh, the unions should expect to get whatever they want, right? Yeah, no, not, not this time. I, I think that, you know, we, we have to prepare for the, you know, our contracts are forward-looking, so we have to prepare for the next three years. Uh, in the last couple of contracts, we've been able to do some things that are creative and, and, and good for everybody. Like uh, what? Uh, with wages and, and with some with, with family leave in some cases in some of the contracts, uh, looking at languages, we're able to in in the contracts for the EMTs, the ambulance drivers, we're able to give them a little more in, in the envelope this year because uh, of the work that they do. Um, you know, in the police department, we're able to avoid um, arbitrations with the BPPA. And twice with the firefighters able to avoid arbitration, we didn't have to go to arbitration, um, which is a good thing. Uh, but this contract, and we, t- we we told I told everyone at the end of the last contract, as we move forward here, we really have to think about the future. I'm hoping the economy stays as strong as it does um, for the next three, four years. But uh, we've had we've had a run here now of eight or nine years of a real strong economy. At some point, we're going to see a little bit of a, a setback here, and we have to make sure that the city's in a good, strong fiscal position moving forward. What impact have the trade wars had on the city economy? I think it's driven up the cost of, of materials. Um, you know, I was talking to I was talking to some some people today, some real estate people. I'm trying to encourage more of these real estate developers to build middle-class housing in the city of Boston. And and the first thing they said to me is the cost of materials is through the roof, and it goes up every day. And I think that the trade was some of the material costs have gone up, particularly around steel uh, and wood. So, I mean, that's my concern is is we think about building more middle-class housing for folks that earn between, you know, 50000 and 100000 or 150000 as a family. Um, if, if, if the material costs are so high, it's going to put, put the, the ability, because of the property costs are high, the land costs are high, 
um, and 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 the material costs are high, and then and then the labor costs. I, mean, I don't want to say they're high because we want to give somebody a good wage, but th- those three things make it really difficult to build this type of housing in mass. Our time's almost up here, Mayor, but I do want to ask you. It's your six years in now, and yep. halfway through your se- almost halfway through your second term. What's different about you now versus six years ago? Um. Certainly, I have the bruises and bumps to, to know this job. Um, and, and I think that, you know, when I ran for mayor and when I first became mayor, it was about how do I plan to move the city forward and how, and, and how do we get people engaged in the conversation. And, and now, six years later, it's, we, we want to continue to move the city forward and implement some of the ideas that we've had working with people. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to housing, we've done an, a really good job in the city of building new housing, 30,000 units of new housing. Uh, we have 50,000 new people living here, 120,000 new jobs in the city. We're leading in climate resiliency, although that doesn't say much for the rest of the world, but we are leading here. Um, Boston is a desirable place. Uh, we're a safer city. Uh, but I think as, as a person that's occupying this office, I understand the job a little better, a lot better. I understand the, the dynamics of it. And, you know, when people have criticisms of me or the administration or, or talk about eliminating agencies, um, you know, you don't take it with a grain of salt. But you, you look and see, rather than just completely out saying that that's a foolish idea of eliminating the BPDA, uh, I take and say, wait a second, in that report, are, are there things in that report that we should take and look at and, and implement into having a better process, a more open, transparent process? Because I, I remember when you first came in, you were quite open about your surprise, really, at what a, a completely different kind of power uh, being a mayor is as opposed to being a legislator yeah. where yeah, I believe I recall you saying to me, you know, in, in, on Beacon Hill, uh, I had to make a tough decision maybe a handful of times yeah. a month. Here, uh, yeah. I've, I've done a uh, half dozen tough calls by uh, by lunchtime. Yeah. See, I, I think I, I govern differently as, as mayor. I, it, that's definitely the case. I mean, in the course of a day, I could have three or four or five or six either tough decisions or crises going on. And the crises don't necessarily hit the hit the media, but they're crises internally, you know. Right. Um, but, but I think that, you know, I believe in collaboration. I believe in working with the city council. Um, you know, my predecessor didn't do that all the time. And it was criticized, he was criticized of being ruling with a kind of a, a tight fist around the city council. I don't operate like that. Uh, and some people perceive it as, as weakness in some cases. It's been described as you, you should you should really reign in the city council. Um, there are 13 members of the city council that are elected just like I am. They have a constituency just like I do. They go out and have ideas just like I do. And, and I, I feel that it's important to collaborate with them. Uh, I think what's happened in government is that this, this reign of power, th- this kind of strangling out of, of the other party has, has really set the is setting the country back where we can't decide on anything in Washington, D.C., I don't want to see that happen in Boston, Massachusetts. We can have a dis- difference of opinions. They can disagree with stuff. I can disagree with them on things. But it is about moving our city forward. And, and that's, I think, one thing I've learned in six years that I might have had a different approach in the very beginning than I do today. Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, thanks for joining us here on Studio BZ. Come back thanks, again, Sean. Sue. It was great. The goal is a city with charm, character, and diversity. In his relentless pursuit of every single one of the presidential candidates coming to and from New Hampshire, uh, Liam caught up with Andrew Yang recently and went up to New Hampshire to do an interview, John, and um, there was this really interesting exchange. Uh, They were outside the building where the event was going to happen, and Liam ran up to interview uh, Mr. Yang, who had 
this fascinating reaction upon seeing Liam and how handsome he is. Now, did you have your shoes off that day, Liam? Was oh, he looking no. at your feet if, when he if, said if that? If he were looking at my feet, he would not have thought that that was Did a good you thing. look at his feet? I did not because, as you know, I'm staunchly anti-feet. He's well, we know. We know you kind of have a, a problem no. with no, feet. No, it was, yeah. he, he was, uh, he's such a nice guy and he's, it was interesting to, to come upon his campaign. We had scheduled this interview and normally there are all kinds of handlers around a presidential mm. candidate yeah. and it's very structured and they come up and they say, you have this many minutes to talk with him or her and you know sometimes they want you to stick to certain topics i'm never going to do that but they want you to do that and these handlers are all around them he did have people around him who were taking pictures and were part of the campaign Mm. none of them came up to me and said you're only gonna have this much time because we have to get to this it was him my interaction was only with him and um he was so just kind of normal Yeah. yeah not a politician Right? Not he a was politician just in any way. He just sort of was a guy on the street that I happened to come upon. It, it felt that way. And the, <laughs> the, as he, as Paula referenced, the first yeah. thing he says to me goes, my God, you are good looking. Well, look, there's nothing, there'd be nothing wrong with having a president who has good taste in feet. Right? <laughs> true. You know true. what? You know what I thought to myself afterwards uh, was he was just kind of, Juicing me up probably to make sure he, he I didn't thought, ask the tough question. I'm gonna just butter up this anger. <laughs> no, Liam, make him fall in love with no, me right um, off the bat. No, when a politician prior to an interview with me starts talking about my stunning <laughs> right. good looks, asking for the mustache, right? That, that's trying to prepare the ground. With you, I think it was a little more sincere. Oh my gosh! And here it says, "What does math stand for?" Oh, math stands for make America think harder. I oh, think. that this is why he wears the math button on yes. his lapel. Yes, oh. make America think, think harder. That makes harder. sense. Harder. Harder. Yeah. And I noticed that people who are fans of Andrew Yang, mm-hmm. the Yang Gang on Twitter, all have the blue hats next to their names. Huh. That's oh, yeah. the icon that will tell you this is an Andrew Yang supporter. Interesting. Blue hats. A blue hat next to their name hmm. on Twitter. And I don't know if that's true for Instagram as well. Mm. But I noticed the minute, what's interesting about him is how fervent his supporters are. We saw that with Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I think his supporters are very mm-hmm. enthusiastic. And Andrew Yang has this connection with people and his idea for the universal basic income. It's a very strong connection. The minute I posted that I'd be interviewing him and it, you could see the interview at eight on TV 38 and CBSN Boston, thousands of people started liking and retweeting it where with the other candidates, there's been a lot of response, but nothing close to that. Interesting. And this is a guy that's only polling at two or 3%. And yet the people who do follow him love his ideas. They like that he's kind of casual and normal and mm-hmm. not a politician and just kind of, they like the straight talk from him. So here's my conversation with presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for speaking with us. We appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before this run, you were a corporate lawyer, the CEO of a test prep company, and then you founded a program called Venture for America to help aspiring entrepreneurs. Why are you running for president? I'm running for president to wake people up to the fact that we're going through the greatest economic change in American history, the fourth industrial revolution. It led to Donald Trump being our president. We automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And now we're doing the same thing to millions of retail jobs, call center jobs, 
fast food jobs, truck driving jobs, and on and on through the economy. We need to adjust to that and solve the problems that got Donald Trump elected in the first place. Was there a moment when you decided, I'm going to run? And what was that moment? A lot of it was my reaction when Donald Trump became president in 2016, where I said, holy cow, tens of millions of Americans just decided to take a bet on the narcissist reality TV star. And I'd spent seven years helping create thousands of jobs in the Midwest and the South. And I saw firsthand that the economic changes were much bigger than we'd realized. So after Donald Trump won, I started digging into what I thought the true causes of his election uh, victory were. And that's when I decided to run for president. Your signature proposal in this race is universal basic income. You call it the freedom dividend. It's $1,000 every month for everyone in the U.S. between 18 and 64 years. Actually, 18 until expiration. 18 until expiration. It's not 64. No. So everyone in the U.S. between 18 and expiration, it would cost, Bridgewater Associates says, about $4 trillion. How do you pay for it? It's a little bit less than that. (laughs) So the way we pay for it is right now you have Amazon, a trillion-dollar tech company, closing 30% of America's stores and malls and paying zero in taxes while doing it. So if we give the American people our tiny, tiny fair share of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, every robot truck mile, we generate hundreds of billions of dollars in new revenue that would help pay for a dividend. A study just came out that said that our data is now worth more than oil. And how much of that value are we seeing? None of it, while our data gets sold and resold by the tech companies. If we put that value into our hands, we can build a trickle-up economy very, very quickly. Under this proposal, everyone would get $1,000 a month from the millionaire to the working mom making $40,000 a year. Does it make more sense to have it as a graduated freedom dividend where the mom making $40,000 a year gets more than the millionaire? There's one state that's had a dividend in place for almost 40 years where everyone in that state gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. And that state is Alaska. They fund it with oil money and everyone gets it from the richest Alaskan to the poorest. In our case, if we give it to everyone, it's going to become universally popular. There's no stigma attached to it. There's no, I'm getting it, you're not getting it. It also removes all of the administration and reporting requirement, just like in Alaska, because there's no incentive to underreport your income if everyone's getting it. But isn't giving Bill Gates an extra $1,000 a month a waste of money? Well, my plan would get millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars from the Bill Gates of the world. And so if we try and send them 1000 bucks a month to remind them that they're an American, uh, it's overall a win. People have been so focused on this idea of the universal basic income, they might not know where you stand on some of the other major issues in 2020. Where do you stand on Medicare for All? I think we need to move towards a Medicare for all system, but I would not get rid of private insurance. The goal has to be to outcompete private insurers. And I think even uh, if we do everything right, there'll still be a role for private insurance in the market. So what is that first step then? Do you add a public option to Obamacare? What's the first step in a Yang administration? Well, the step would be to take Medicare and then uh, lower the eligibility age and then make it so that everyone can access it. Get there over time, not eliminating private insurance. That's right. Uh, You've argued for legalizing marijuana nationally and decriminalizing some drugs. Is that all drugs? It's decriminalizing addictive opiates because right now we have a plague in this country. Eight Americans are dying every hour of opiate overdoses. And the goal has to be to try and bring both abuse and overdose rates down. When you look around the world, when they've decriminalized these drugs for personal use, so if you're a dealer, you go to jail. 
But if you're an addict and we catch you with the drugs, we don't send you to jail, we send you to counseling and treatment. And this brings down both overdose race, rates and abuse rates over time. One of the things that's been proposed in Massachusetts, in New Hampshire, and they're doing it in Canada are these safe injection sites. Do you support those? I do. I was talking to an EMT right here in New Hampshire, and he said that he saves someone uh, who's overdosing one week and then has to save the same person again the next week and the week after that. Because what happens after they overdose, they go home and then they uh, overdose again. So we should invest in these safe consumption sites because they save lives and actually give addicts a real chance to recover. You have no uh, formal foreign policy experience. We're in a time right now, the situation in Syria, North Korea, what's going on with Iran. Americans are tuned into foreign policy at the moment. How do you persuade the voters that you have the experience necessary and that you're prepared to be the commander in chief? Well, first, a lot of the threats we're facing in the 21st century are going to be different than the threats we faced in the last century. So that includes cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, drones, loose nuclear material, climate change, non-state actors. And we need a commander in chief that actually understands the challenges of this era. I believe I can help catch us up because right now our government is decades behind the curve on issues like technology, cybersecurity, AI, and unfortunately even climate change. You've been open on the campaign trail. I want to get to a personal question here. You have a son with autism. You have two young sons. And I want to ask you a question that probably isn't asked very often of male candidates. How do you balance your job as a father and caring for your kids and your wife with the constant travel, the stress of being a candidate for office? How are you balancing that? Occasionally someone thanks me on the trail for running and I say thank my wife because uh, I'm just very, very fortunate to have a super woman as a partner uh, who's been taking on the chin where our boys are concerned. Uh, I miss them terribly when I'm on the road. Uh, they, they unfortunately are getting kind of used to my not being around. Uh, it's very hard, but we have a lot of family members who've been spending time with our boys. Uh, my mom, her mom, uh, you know, uh, cousins, everyone's been uh, supporting the entire family through this time. Ultimately, you feel it's been worth it? Well, I'm fighting for a future that we can be proud of for my kids, for your kids, uh, for Americans around the, the country. And I'm in a very fortunate position where I do have a fantastic partner um, who's making sure that our family is strong and whole. Uh, I think I'm doing this for them. And, and I'm happy to say they're, they're really loving the campaign on some levels. I mean, they miss dad, but in some levels they find it a lot of fun. They get to see dad crowd surfing every once in a while. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, so I have some incredibly heartwarming stories where my dad showed up to a debate watch party and it was like, that's my son, and everyone's like, hey, so, you know, it's actually making the family uh, uh, come together in some ways. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for speaking with us. We appreciate it. Was such it. a pleasure. Austin Hill, the glittering jewel city of the world. Our next segment is called Halloween is a Thing. And Liam had a suggestion for this week. Yeah, I wanted us all to uh, share our worst Halloween costume because I have a story along those mm. lines. And I didn't, I didn't know if anyone else had had sort of a traumatic experience as a kid of a oh, costume that just really didn't work out for did you. Did this involve shoes? No, it did not. <laughs> no shoes. Go ahead. No How shoes involved you, John, what did you wear as a kid? What was your favorite Boy, looking You back? know, now listen, I'm considerably older but than you guys. You're, you're asking me. I, I don't really fun. remember John specific... was in the era of paper bags with the holes cut out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am a robot. You know, that kind of thing. I do remember for a while, and this was more as a young adult, that I developed an affinity for a pink robe that my fiancé, soon-to-be wife, had. 
and we would be going out to a party and I'd just put it on (laughs) over my clothes and wear it without explanation. (laughs) And this seemed to be why I always had a lot of free time at parties. (laughs) Time to contemplate. You were that guy. Yeah. That guy in the pink robe. This is her when boyfriend you were keeps 40 wearing her five? robe. No, no, this is more like twenties. <laughs> uh, do you remember any particularly great costume you ever pulled off? Pulled off? You know, the, no, that you, you wore, and it was a huge hit. Mm. No, no, not to be honest. How no. about you? Yeah, no, I, I can't say. I oh come I'm on, not, Paula okay, just pulled okay, off recently. one of the great well, costumes. Have uh, you seen my the picture worst one as a child. of her as Moira Rose? Yes, she I dressed as Moira try. Rose the other night to a Halloween party. <laughs> really? Moira Rose, from the Schitt's character Creek? from Schitt's Creek, yeah. spelled S C H I T. It's all right. It's a podcast. You can say Yes, I did dress up as Moira Rose, and that was a big wow. My worst it was fantastic. My I worst got, childhood costume was some little girl down the street for some reason thought it was a fantastic idea for the three little girl friends to go as bacon and eggs. And they were the two strips of bacon. And, you and I was like a huge fried egg in the middle. So how did you make it that? It sounded a lot better. Yeah, I bet it was. That it actually... How did you... What did, what did you use to make an egg? It poster board and yellow paint and mm. some white fabric. Well, now, and Paula, you were the... not great. You grew up as the... You were the youngest of yes. nine children. Eleven. Eleven, Eleven excuse Eleven me. Children. So did your folks ever, like, get all the kids dressed up in a certain theme no, or anything? No, they never did that. Because oh. the age pre- gap was so big, The age right? gap was yeah. huge. And uh, but I went trick or treating alone by the time really? it was down to me. Aww. But you know, when you think back, I mean, I'm sure you had this too. Mothers just send kids out alone. Mm, we would yes. go out into the dark. Yeah. Now I feel like you'd be arrested if you yeah. had to do such the, a thing. By the way, you, for Liam? people who want to see Paula as Moira Rose, <laughs> I do. Uh, Allie, when's that getting posted? Yeah. Okay, it's going to be posted on Halloween on the uh, WBZ Twitter accounts, and you will want to see this picture. <laughs> so how about you, Trust Liam? me, you will want to see it. So let me preface my story by saying I have a terrible long-term memory, and yet this story is emblazoned on my brain. Sounds traumatic. Uh, yeah. I was six yeah. years old. My mom says that I asked to dress as a witch. Not a warlock. A witch. That's fine. Yeah. I did not ask. That is false. <laughs> She always wanted a daughter. She had three boys. She had me dress as a witch. I'm sorry, I had the hat, mm-hmm. the skirt, the I had a these dress. Uh, yeah, a skirt. It was a skirt or a dress, mm-hmm. and I had these funky colored witch type socks on. I mean, it was the whole thing. Wow. Okay. And <clears throat> I didn't really think anything of it, but we you get to it the was fine. Uh, we get to the police station. And because they're at the window inside the headquarters, they're no, no. We get to the police station because they were handing out candy at the police station. Sure. Okay, so the little window inside the headquarters, and the guy handing out the candy, the, the police officer, a police officer starts laughing at me, not with me. He starts laughing and at me dressed as a witch. And I kid you not. Six oh, or so. Geez. I kid you not, he turns around and goes, Hey, Bill, there's a boy out here dressed as a witch. You got to come see this. Police officers from all... Oh, my God. From everywhere in the headquarters come out to look at me dressed as a witch, as a boy, and are laughing at me. So I put on a brave face in the moment and then walked out of the police headquarters and cried oh. a fair amount in the car on the ride. Oh. And what did your mother say? Four years ago, when I got hired here, 
and you know, first had a little bit of power and had some contacts. I had all of those officers fired. <laughs> this is, this is and the their PS pensions the revoked. Excellent. I'd say so you got I, even there, big fella. In retrospect, <laughs> does your mother? You guys, I, I didn't expect you guys to be so horrified by this. So you know, after all these story. years, it's a is that horrible? Story. I thought that would be funny. That's a t- it's not funny. Yeah. It's to me, a to, me story. to me, it's funny now. I just want to say he's okay. kidding. When we do not have the power to get oh, police, God. oh no, God, of course no. not. Yeah, no, no. But Nor no, would we not, trust your mother, who is a lovely person, yes, and a former teacher. When she looks back, is she like, oh, it wasn't that bad? We laugh about it. All right, she see, she laughed about it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In we the moment, to it. her as an adult, yeah. it must not have been and, as bad as it was blown up in your right. mind. And I laugh about it to uh, kind of quiet the demons <laughs> and the scars, yeah. the deep emotional scarring. Yeah. This, this is all story. tied in with the foot thing. I'm, I'm sure of it. <laughs> no, I didn't. It, it is funny to me now. It is funny to me now. But it was the worst Halloween ever. Oh I yeah, mean, I was. I don't blame you. Yeah, I've got, there were I, like a good three or four police officers laughing at me. I have ways. two worst Halloweens ever, and they didn't occur when I was a child. They occurred as an adult and as a parent. Uh, two years running, my boys would come back with their big bags of candy. We, you know, let them have some and then take it away and mm. put it up on a high shelf and dole it out to them because that's the kind of fascist parents we are. <laughs> So both years, you know, my, my parents, the boys' grandparents, would come over. They lived nearby, and they would come over to see the boys oh, still yeah. in their costumes. And, well, my late father, God bless him, uh, was a bit of a chocoholic. So this happened two years running. While we were all up with the kids, getting them ready for bed, he would slip downstairs, find the squirreled-away <laughs> bags of candy, and, you know, start chowing down. <laughs> Both years, he left one bag of candy on the counter where our yellow lab, oh, Cleo, oh, could no, get no. to them. Cleo? Your dog's name was Cleo? Back then, yeah. I had a dog named Cleo growing up. Yeah, the muse of history. Yeah. So, uh, so I spent two consecutive ice-cold Halloween nights sit- sitting out on the curb in the bitter cold alongside my yellow lab, who's looking up at me like, what are we doing, Dad? (laughs) Waiting, having poured half a bottle of hydrogen peroxide down the dog's throat, waiting for her to throw up all the chocolate. Otherwise, it was going to be a beeline to the Angel Memorial, right? And sure enough, took about 45 minutes both years, but after a while, up comes the partly digested Halloween candy. So In the wrappers, I assume? Yeah, and the wrappers. So just to finish this really great, riveting story, <laughs> both both times it was my younger son Jared's candy. Oh, right? boy. Yeah. So I'm, in particular, the second time it happened, he was furious and just beside himself. And the only way I could console him and turn the crying into laughter was to sit, describe the scene outside with me and the dog and how Cleo had spat up <laughs> a three-foot-high mountain of Reese's peanut butter barf. Mm, yum. And somehow that tickled this funny dog. <laughs> yeah. Kids do like somehow that sort of thing. Somehow yeah. like... you turned that Halloween around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> good parenting 101. <laughs> I thought you'd like Heartwarming. that. Heartwarming. Oh, yeah, Tell us right, yeah. about Berlin. Um. Well, I spat on Hitler's grave. That wow. was fun. 
You really Good. did. Yeah. Good for you, you go to the um, Memorial for the Murdered Jews, which is right next to the Reichstag in the government main government area of Berlin. And it's an incredible memorial. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. Mm. It's a basically a city block that's been cleared and populated with these white coffin-like structures. Uh, but they might not be coffins. It's up to your imagination, but the, the, it's un- undulating ground. So you walk among them and people appear and disappear and you're thinking about the Holocaust. And it's really very moving. There's an incredible museum there. So it's a very emotional experience. Mm. Come out of it and my, my wife and I immediately, it's lunchtime, we want to get an Uber, get out of there and start drinking. <laughs> so we uh, walk a little bit away, so 30 yards away to get a, an address on the app for the Uber to pick us up. And I notice there's a knot of tourists looking at a, a signage, like a display sign at the edge of a parking lot. Hmm. It's like, well, what a, what's this all about? I go over shoulder my way in there, and it, it it's a description of the underground bunkers that the Nazis maintained right adjacent to the Reichstag uh, for times like when the Allies were closing in, and right beneath where we were standing was the bunker where Hitler's body was found uh, when he committed mm. suicide. So uh, I call my wife over. She looks at it. Uh, we kind of look at each other, and we turn and spat on the ground. And I don't think we were the only ones. So that was fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, incredible history. Uh, the German people do an unbelievably good job of acknowledgement and repentance mm. of their hideous recent past. Mm. Uh, there are plaques in the street uh, denoting the homes uh, uh, where Jews were arrested and deported and and as they all say, and taken to Auschwitz and murdered. They use the word murdered to describe what happened to the Holocaust victims. Not deceased, not perished, murdered. Mm. They're very upfront about it in a way no other European country that I've been to is. And are all uh, those signs in German mm. or are they German and German English? German and, and yeah. English. So yeah. fantastic. But, it's very clear. But uh, the thing I'll probably remember most about Berlin is what an unbelievably interesting and hot city. Mm. 80% of the people on the street appeared to be under 40. Mm. Um, Small businesses just proliferating. The food scene is unreal. No schnitzel and sauerkraut. It's all food from all over the world. And it's just uh, amazing art galleries, amazing museums, street life that's fantastic. What a city. I would urge everyone to go, and whether or not you're interested in, in the history. Well, it's interesting you mentioned those plaques because there's been a movement here in Boston to do that with some of the buildings that were at the center of the slave trade. Yeah. And to mm-hmm. mark some of these spots, mm-hmm. uh, obviously the Faneuil Hall, we now know about Peter Faneuil's history. Mm-hmm. And what is the building that where they just realized it was used as part of the slave trade. One of our historic downtown buildings. Old North Church. Old, Old North, North Church. Church. There's now a movement mm. to put some sort of memorial inside Old North Church saying this building mm. was part of the slave trade. Mm. And, I, and it sounds like Germany well, has been doing that for years and years. I find that, I found it really compelling. Yeah. You yeah. know what's so fascinating? Um, John and I were discussing this a couple of days ago when he first got back. My parents lived in Germany between 1947 and 49 during the occupation when American troops arrived. He was an army doctor. There was still rubble everywhere. And even at that point, 
uh, you know, about 18 months to two years after the end of the war. Uh, my father always talked about how they would take um, a constant stream of German citizens, even at that early stage, through Dachau, oh, through yeah. concentration camps, and the uh, U.S. Army had a whole technique of taking people through so there could be no denial of what had happened on their soil mm, yeah. right within their vicinity to say, really, if you didn't understand what was happening, we're going to show it to you, would bring them through. They would have sort of speeches and talks about the American way. And then at the end of the day, they had a certificate of denazification. Oh, wow. It is done. This is over. And you're good with us now. And how important and cathartic that was in that time period. Well, we and could, it kind of allowed Germans to move on. It, it really took. Yeah, it because, really did. Because uh, Germany today, at least in Berlin, we, that's all we saw. But uh, they do a fantastic job of it. And, you know, you go to Spain, you will look far and wide for any acknowledgement of the Spanish Civil War, which was mm. a brutal, horrific yeah. uh, war within the past century. Uh, France, uh, uh, other, other countries are the same way. It's all, they don't really like to talk about it. It's mm. sort of hidden away, not in Berlin. It's front and center. And there are fairly new historic displays just right out on the main streets. You'll be walking along, you'll come to a little plaza, and there's a fantastic museum-quality outdoor display documenting the events that led up to uh, Germany's uh, involvement in World War One, mm. And, you know, Boston could learn a lot about showcasing and being honest about its history from mm. Berlin. Excellent. Okay. So this was a really interesting, wide-ranging podcast. Wow, it went We're everywhere. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Jonathan will probably cut all the good stuff. Sure. <laughs> I'll be edited <laughs> down do. to yeah. nothing. But subscribe and share. Tell your friends. Our Twitter handle is at StudioBZPod. Mine is at Paula Evan. I'm at Keller at Large. I am at Liam WBZ. And when you're there listening to the podcast, send us a review as well. And as Paula was saying, hit, hit five stars. Hit five stars because it's a five-star show. Yes, and then absolutely. tip. Don't forget to tip. Yeah. <laughs> Send a tip. And tweet us your thoughts. And tweet us your thoughts as well. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. Have a wonderful, safe one. Hope you get lots of candy. And next week, we'll be seeing you. Alright, I was not expecting much. I, oh, yeah, that was, I thought that was got a little, it got a little dark. Are you sure you're over it? Are you sure you want that? You I can thought it was funny. I've told us. that story at so you many parties and it's always a hoot. It's it's not a hoot. It reminds me of the scene from <laughs> Carrie, the movie hoot. Carrie. The mother, they're all gonna laugh at you. They're all gonna laugh at you. <laughs>